listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy. Great to have you on board as always. Welcome along. Series 2, episode 26 of the Howie Games. And wherever you're listening, I hope the sun is shining down on you and you're having a brilliant day and that you enjoy this week's episode as much as I did. And gee, I had no idea what is required to be a professional cyclist. So this episode really opened my eyes. And with the Tour de France recently finished for another year, who better to feature than the first Aussie to win cycling's ultimate event, Cadell Evans. There is the man who's won the Tour de France, the first to congratulate Cadell Evans, the first Australian to win the Tour de France. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's, who's had faith in me, in my career, in my, my, for everyone from my teammates, my friends, my colleagues, and oh, I couldn't be happier than to be standing up right here in the middle here. How good is that? And as I alluded to at the start, talking to Cadell really blew my mind. Just the fitness that these guys have. He pretty much lays out a blueprint on exactly what's required to win the Tour de France and the necessity just to embrace pain and continue to push on and on and on when your body's saying, no, enough, enough. And for those that like a heartwarming story, which I really do, stick through to the very end where Cadell talks about adopting his son. It's a really beautiful story. They could help out if they try Try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. By the way, Cadell actually lives in the same small coastal town as I do, Barwon Heads, and you can pick him from a mile off when he's on his bike because his body seems to be in perfect symmetry. Nothing moves except his legs. There's a real economy of movement. He just sort of flows on a bicycle. It's incredible to watch. So if you're listening to this while on your bike, well, I hope you're flowing and you're symmetrical and you're going well, and I hope this podcast encourages you to push a little bit harder when you're out on your bike today. Enjoy Cadell Evans. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed In King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Cadell Evans, welcome to the Howie Games. It's great to see you, and for the first time, I get to do a podcast at home in Barwon Heads, which is fantastic. You look well. Oh, thanks, mate. We um, yeah, we normally have to travel for for our work, but um, fortunately, things are coming. Things have come to us this week and this weekend. It's been a massive weekend. We're sitting here uh, at the Heads, which is the best spot in Barwon Heads. The bike race has just been on the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road race. My kids. I've become assessed by cycling within the space of three days. I haven't got off the bike, which is, I guess, one of the great things about it. So congratulations to oh, you. Thanks. It's um, music to my ears. That's really what um, a big part of the, or part of the big picture of having the race and having the event, having the women's race. Um, Sky, your daughter, would hopefully see that and think, um, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to force people on bike. She but, did. But just plant a seed in, in especially the, the, the women's race is an inspiration to young girls and that's where someone where I just met your daughter this morning where maybe in 10, 10 years' time when she looks at taking up sport or being more serious at sport, she'll, she'll be more likely to consider cycling as one of those options. And, and so that's, yeah, that's just all, all part of the big picture of having a race and having an event and I was the same. When I was 14 years old, I watched SBS and I watched Miguel Indrain win his first Tour de France. And I thought, mm, oh, I reckon I wouldn't mind doing that one day. But how good is it that something you can do? Like my little bloke who's five, Mackie, that the audience knows as the big penguin on this podcast, I'll explain that to you later. He's like, oh, Dad, where do I get some of those shiny clothes so I can wear them on my bike? And it's, <laughs> it's amazing the impression things like that can have on little people. That's, um, yeah, we're, um, well, we're both fathers, so yeah. we, we, we understand this. But that's, um, yeah, that's the... Um, yeah, that's the impression. It's important that we make good impressions on on the younger generation. And um, and um, um, I'm trying to think of a better word than influence, but um, set a, set a good example for them to to lead them in the in the right direction. And that's where um, having the race a thing in my to help one of my directions of the race or a vision I have for the race is is someone like 
Sorry, the big penguin. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> That's him. We'll see, we'll see watch that race as a five-year-old, as he did on the weekend, and maybe in 20 years' time come back and you know, take up cycling, race as a junior, race under 23, and come back and maybe one day win it. That is my ultimate, ultimate goal, that in <laughs> 15 or 20 years... A kid from standing on the starting line will come be a pro rider, go through that whole process. Probably about a five, ten year process, but but that's um, <clears throat> something I'd like to be. I think the event will be able to do. And even from that, mate, he's asking me yesterday, Dad, what do these guys have to eat? How, how do they ride on their bike so long? And you know, the world in which we live, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but obviously obesity is a massive problem. He's saying, Dad, what, what do these guys eat to ride on their bike? He's five. It's, you couldn't get a more positive influence. That's that's exactly what we're trying to do. Glad you glad we could see that, and I'm glad to hear it firsthand. That, yeah. Well, at least one. You've got two. 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 Okay. Well, I'll go and check on the other hundred hundred thousand or so, and we'll see. Where did it all start for you? What's your first memory of getting on a bike, I guess, is the obvious question. Um, I lived in um, Bamilly in the Northern Territory. Right. There was no, there's no bike races up there then, and there won't be any, any near Aboriginal settlement <clears throat> near Catherine in the Northern Territory. No, I just started riding a 16-inch BMX, and, um, and I guess um, there's one thing, I loved it, but I didn't know anything else and um, there was, it's an Aboriginal settlement. There's uh, not many white people up there, or there were not many white people up there. And so, what were you doing up there? What uh, was your my, folks parents, doing? my parents went up there for work and right, okay. a bit of an adventure, and uh, young parents, and um, and that's the, where I started. And I think so at age three or four, <clears throat> training wheels, BMX riding. It was just a time we didn't have TV, we didn't have... There wasn't even other kids nearby to play with. I think, if I remember correctly, there was one other white child in the whole community. So I'd play with the Aborigines and, and there was one girl um, a little bit older than me, if I remember correctly. And um, But I just started riding at a young age. I sort of drifted away from just riding a bike a bit, but then I came back to it later as about a 12, 13, 14-year-old. First bike? First bike? First bike was a 16-inch BMX when I was three was with it? training wheels. You and still then, remember it? Yep, and I've been told a few times. And there's a there's a there's a book out on, in, the, in the bookstores right now, and on the back cover is a picture of me riding this bike. So and the bike the book is uh, uh, close to uh, sorry, <laughs> the art of cycling. Right. And um, and uh, I've spent spent the last 22 months <laughs> getting that ready, but that's another story. But. Um, Going back to it, and then uh, later on in life, I was living um, by this time moved to Melbourne, living on the outskirts of Melbourne, and for just for insp- independence, um, transport. Got a mountain bike, just to have start riding around, riding to visit friends, and so I'll ride over to friends' house. But then it didn't become. I rode to visit friends to go for rides, and that led to participating in a mountain bike race, and then it all went from there. Before before we get to that point, it, it fascinates me where you grew up. So was this? Were you just like a kid, just running free out in the wild? Yep, I always. That's cool. I always lived in the um, in the country, and we always lived on like farms and space. And my mother has horses; still has horses today. She lives on acreage, and um, and that's um, finally that served me really well for my profession. It doesn't sound anything like riding the Tour de France, but mm. the isolation. Um, what one thing living out there teaches you is to be independent, not only in a practical sense, but also in an um, emotional sense. And as a bike rider, you often have to be emotionally very <clears throat> quite strong yeah. and, and independent in your mindset, because sometimes you've only got yourself to, to, to rely on in, in a lot of situations. And so when I went to go and live overseas as a professional rider and things, these, um, all these lessons that I had in my, in my younger life, Helped um, prepare me, prepare me for for my profession. Reading a bit of stuff about you and reading y- y- your fantastic book and a couple of other things that I've been doing in the last couple of weeks from when you were going to have a chat. You talked about your mum's horses and growing up in the outback. From what I could gather, you had an incident with a horse. Yep, that's correct. Uh, you, 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 the, the, those listening, here's a scar on the side of my head here. It's a good it's scar a, too. Yeah, it's a pretty solid one. That one, 28 stitches, uh, six days in a, in a coma in intensive care. In a um, coma. Yep. How yeah. old were you? Uh, eight years old. I was, um, yeah, just, I think it was about uh, ten days after my eighth birthday, and just a little mishap. One of the foals got a bit excited, and I was in its line of fire, and uh, and yeah, I copped a, <laughs> copped, a, copped a foal's hoof in the side of my head and fra- depressed skull fracture, and that was, I think, um, you know, <clears throat> one thing you look, I look back at now, my experiences in life, and it's amazing how much the um, 
the difficulties in life, the challenges that life gives mm. us, prepare us and make us better people and stronger characters. And and um, that was one of the that was one of the one of the learning experiences in life, or one of the steep learning curves that I had to deal with in life. But yeah, helped me help me prepare me for later on. So, at what stage do you start to think I'm not just riding to my mates on my bike? I- I'm actually better than the people I'm. Were well, you racing in you in races, or when do you start to think, oh, I could? maybe make a dollar riding a bike or you don't think of it like that? Um, I initially started racing and then at about age 14 liked it. Um, At a young age I liked training, I liked racing. Um, I had this knack that I liked training more than most so I trained more so I got, I I improved quicker and and, and, and cycling, like I said it was it's a really independent thing especially mountain biking especially when you're young and especially in that time period where um the sport was wasn't nearly as well known as it is today Mm. or in Australia at least and um being single-minded and focused being happy to be on my own and go out riding before school was to my advantage especially my earlier years to um and um when I found out that um that there are some people who do this for a profession to make a career of it. Make a career of it. I um, I um, just getting a coffee. Like, just a typical yeah, cyclist is about yeah, fifteen cyclist, coffees. One, one little espresso. <laughs> <laughs> well, one for breakfast. One one one. I stop one one out the ride and one for one for the afternoons. Uh, one, what, afternoons. What, what what did you like about training? Um, what, sorry, so just to finish yep. off on the. When I found out that you you could make a profession of this, my thing wasn't, I'd like to do that. It's like, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to become a professional at this. And from then on, that's when I dedicated myself and that's when I went into a process of goal setting, work ethic and um, you know, training hard was, was probably the first bit of advice when I asked someone about this. And I think a friend of mine told me, you're going to have to train very, very, very hard. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And that's um, so I just started working on the process from there. So you're obviously a very strong-minded individual and I'm fascinated by pain in sport and we'll get to that. <laughs> because, well, uh, I can't imagine where you take yourself, which I'd like to get to at some point in this chat. Obviously very strong-minded though. Certainly, I. Um, my mother says I was, when I had something in my head, no matter what it was, age three, four, she always gives this example. One day, I'm going to get as many wine bottle corks, wine corks, as, as I can. Two or three days later, I had 150 corks. <laughs> <laughs> when did you find all those corks? I just looked everywhere you could possibly look, and I got as many as I could. She said I was always... I was always, um, if I got something in my head, I just went after it. And um, I must say, I think, I think that stayed in me, in, in my character. And, um, and, and so um, that was the case with training and improving. And um, my, my first thing was to gain knowledge and um, look at, uh, analyse myself, my activity, my sport, and... Um, educate myself to do it as best as I can and then break it down into it. So uh, I suppose I, I just naturally took a very methodical approach to the whole thing and um, basically it came down to, well, <clears throat> do this as efficiently as you can um, and efficiently f- from every pedal stroke you take on a bike to every minute you spend training to every hour of your day that you dedicate to your sport to do it better every day because cumulatively over 365 days a year if you're doing 5 or 10% more just because you're 5 or 10% more efficient obviously at the end of the 365 days you've done a lot more and that's put ahead of, put you ahead of your com- competitors and when you think of it in a year by year process at age 15 by the time I was 21 I think I still stand today as the youngest youngest winner of a mountain bike cross country world cup <clears throat> um which i'm kind of proud of because when we go and look at the under end of my career i was the oldest post-war tour de france winner absolutely so, oh, well, well i was i was at a high level but for a, a consistently and also for a long time which i'm i'm very proud of so before get into your coffee mate we're sitting here actually quite extraordinarily it's just been announced that vegemite has come back to australia with bega which is fantastic um we're not plugging vegemite but you're sitting here and jace back here managers giving you vegemite with instead of vegemite written across it's got cadell written across it which is which is a nice <laughs> I'm, little I'm, touch quite, I'm quite honored oh, i think you should be mate i think you should be um that type of level of performance that you got yourself to 
how much training is required as a young man? What type of training are you doing when you're trying to take on the world of mountain bikes? So um, at a young age, and this is where I'm often asked today when I've stepped away from the sport, would I like to be a coach? And I say, well, I'd like to be a coach, but I'm, only, I'm very experienced at coaching myself. At a certain size engine, I knew how I knew its limits, and well, I pushed it to its limits. Um, everyone's limits are different, and that's where a qualified coach knows yep. the general population better than I. I know one. I know one. I know one engine very well. <clears throat> a coach knows <clears throat> the, gen- the engines of the general population well. What, what can I ask you? What your engine is compared to the general population? Are you um, a type of freak or not? For um, want of a better I term? certainly had a certain amount of um, aerobic talent and aerobic capacity. Um, compared to the average person, are you in? A, is there a percentile type that you, they put you yeah, on the VO2 at the or AIS lab? The physiologist, I well, I had the record until just recently. I think it was the highest VO2 max ever registered ever registered at the wow. AIS in Canberra. Um, so at that point, yeah, when we talk about percentage terms of the population it's in the upper echelons and how big that how big that upper percentile is is would is quite would probably be quite small right who beat you um i don't know but i okay. assume it would be a cross-country skier right okay <laughs> that would normally be the case so you're genetically blessed in that area yep i think i have my parents to thank for that aspect of of giving me good genes and and like that's just one measure of of uh an important factor that you need to succeed. Um, you, there's many other factors, and, and then, of course, you go into the psychological side of things. So you have the physical sides, which is, of course, <clears throat> VO2 max capacity, bike handling skills, race now, and then you also you go into just the injury resistance illness resistance those things because there are also things that undo sports people's careers mental strength too i guess and then you go into the psychological factors which are opening a whole uh, other um uh i would say pandora's box but mm. a whole <laughs> that's which, a whole, that's which a, is more important cadell to win elite cycling events do you need i guess you need both but which has served you best you certainly need both and i always found that one led the other right some days you go out with no desire or no confidence, or not no confidence, but with no a, a low men, mental state, or a, I think in psychology it's called a low um, <clears throat> low stimulus or um, a low, low level of, of arousal. And um, but then the legs start to turn because often because you're relaxed and you have no expectations on yourself, you have no pressure on yourself. Your body just takes its way and it actually performs better than when you put pressure on yourself. And then uh, you find oh, good legs, feeling good today. And before you know it, you follow a few moves and you're you're setting yourself up for a big victory. Um, <clears throat> and that. Um, and in that in that sense, the physical led the mental. Whereas in other cases, you just put yourself under so much pressure that you have to do it, and then the mental has to lead the physical. That is dragging the physical along, and the physical just has to. But also in that case, when we speak about sports psychology and the arousal U curve, putting too much pressure on yourself brings uh, lowers your um, ability to perform as well. Your first prize money. What can you remember? What was the first time you won any money, and how much was it from a I bike race? A, I won a small race. There was a gentleman uh, who was running. His name was Kim Banks, and he ran a small mountain bike series, just locally around Melbourne. And he would give a uh, prize. I think it was a fifty dollars gift voucher at a <laughs> sponsoring bike shop. Right. And um, I um, people people. I'm an ambassador for a bike company, and. Um, and for the bikes that I, I, I won the Tour de France on. And um, so I have a lot of very nice bikes. And when I started, I had uh, very, very basic equipment. And $50 went a long way for someone who had um, the, bare, the barest, most basic equipment <laughs> of anyone in the, in, in the field. And, um, yeah, I remember that. I remember that well. Probably bought myself a tyre or something. And, and away you went. And yeah, got me ready. One, one, one bit of tyre was for the next race. But that, just as a side note to that... I uh, remember hearing the great Peter Brock speaking once and how his manager used to draw the best out of him by making him race on his teammates' old tyres. And um, I started off on very basic equipment and it made me very good with my equipment. It taught me to be very efficient and and delicate with my equipment, which actually was one of those funny things in life. You're kind of disadvantaged in one respect, but it actually makes you better later on. Your your roll call of success, you know, you've been to four Olympics... Commonwealth Games gold medal you've won a world championship but I guess you mentioned it right at the start that as a young man you saw the big MIG winning the Tour de France and that's where you set yourself at what stage does that come into your mind you obviously move from the mountain bikes to to road cycling 
when you start to think, right, I need to prepare myself to, to enter the Tour de France, let alone compete in it? Yeah, I, I was drawn to the sport through mountain bike and um, I raced uh, two Olympic Games and after the Sydney Olympics, which didn't go nearly as well as I'd hoped to or I'd aspired to, um, the biggest difficulties I came that year, it was the first year I'd ever had to deal with in- injury and setbacks. I'd, I'd always, um, funnily enough, I'd had a possibility to avoid injury and illness and so on, but um, so when it came... I didn't have an experience of how to deal with it, which was to my disadvantage. And that um, <clears throat> an injury at the start of the year put me off, another injury, another injury, and it just um, sort of snowballed in a negative manner um, in, in putting me off. I still went there and performed at the best with what I had, but it wasn't, a, wasn't an ideal build-up. And anyway, going forward to... Um, I started at a young age in one sport, in one discipline of the sport, which gave me an opportunity to have a... a a second career in sport, if we go back to the initial discussion, I, it was a dream for me to become a professional cyclist. Now I had a chance to, to have a second career in, in, the, in the sport as a professional. So I, so I was already felt uh, very fortunate and I saw it as another opportunity in life. And um, the, there was, a biggest, uh, it was the biggest team in the cycling at the time had been watching me as I was racing on the road, mainly for training, but they'd been watching me and approached me and wondered, asked if I would like to prepare for the Grand Tours. But at this and at this time in the sport of mountain bike, I'd sort of <clears throat> ticked a lot of boxes and a new um, a new team, a new environment, and a new sti- a new stimulus, new set of challenges, a new set of goals came at a really welcome time. I was 25 years old and had just enough time to you know, make a, f- a full career on the road. You mentioned that Sydney didn't go that well for you on the mountain bike. How do you deal with defeat? Um, not very well. What does that mean? Um, oh, it was, it, it was certainly had, I, I went in with very high expectations and I think the, I had a feeling that probably the country had maybe high expectations on me, but, um. Home Olympics. Yeah, Home Olympics, but also there I looked at it and this is where I would say in my inexperience, I'm only going to do one Home Olympics in my life, but that's the way I looked at it and I probably put too much pressure on myself and speaking before where that can force you to, can diminish your ability to perform and I, I probably put too much pressure on myself whereas if I'd been able to sit back and relax a little bit, just a, just a little bit, not much, um, it would have helped me perform better but of course you only have one chance in your life to have a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well as a person let's look at it in the global sense I'm lucky to go to the Olympics to go to my second Olympics in my home country when I'm in the top echelon of my sport is um, all these factors become uh, I was really I had a really fortunate a great opportunity but um, yeah I I probably bad luck put too much pressure on myself and I was uh, 23 years old and I'd have the the weight of expectation was it was I didn't have, certainly didn't have the experience to deal with that that I that I have now. So failure, because we all fail, and sports people's failure is put up there on the, you know, everyone sees it. How do you deal with it? Does it motivate you? Does it frustrate you? Does it annoy you? Do you chuck your bike around a room? How do you deal um, with it? Um, I, I, I'm usually motivated by it. Right. I don't like the sometimes, and certainly as you point out, sports people's failures, um, they're very well analysed. And um, having, having come ever? second at the, twice at the Tour de France, that's considered a failure in the, in the world of cycling. Crazy, and, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, when you look at it now, now that I've stepped away from the sport, I look at it now and it does seem quite crazy, but that's considered a failure. And um, funny, I can't, I, I've been fourth at the Tour de France and I wasn't, I, I was almost more complimented because you're very criticised. I think the second place at the Tour de France is you feel certainly when you when I finished there, it felt like the most criticised person in the race. It's like, oh, you're actually pretty good. There was one guy that was better than you. So, um, so that 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 is frustrating, and I don't like it. And like after I did two years in a row, and for a year, and and I go to the baker, I go to the cafe in the morning where I'm based in uh, Europe or something, and everyone asks like every day everywhere you go you go to the supermarket oh but can you win the tour can you win the tour after three years of this you're sort of like it's hard not to ask yourself can I win the tour but I'm always well to be honest I don't know but I'm I'm going to keep trying and um 
obviously coming second twice I'm not far off it so I, I certainly wasn't going to give up but um, most of all I learnt from my failures and funnily enough when we when we go to my, my I think the best moments of my career it was thanks to all of those failures that I could deal with those moments because they were really um, high pressure moments and if I, I think I speak about something like my result at the 2009 World Championships or or the the most decisive days at the 2011 Tour de France where um, I don't think there's many many athletes, many of my competitors at the time which would have been able to deal with the mental, never alone the physical uh, pressures and requirements of that uh, in those moments. More of Cadell Evans in a moment. Let me tell you, the big penguin is absolutely frothing about next week's guest. Ooh la la! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pickle. Next week is big time. Sure, we've rolled out Ponting, KP, the great white shark, Kathy Freeman, Darren Samu, Wayne Beachley, and Postacogalogaloo. But next week, a man I'm going to surf like one day, mighty Mick Fanning. Uh, so now it's I um, I see everything that's going on. And well, I you're more aware of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, so have you seen sharks in the water since? Yeah, fully. Right. I had a couple of incidents like straight after. Did you? Yeah, straight after J Bay, like. In uh, Tahiti, there was a, a little reef shark sort of circling around in the channel and, and like, everyone's blaming on me, of course. Go Fano, go Fano, go Fano, go Fano. Settle, Pengi. Catch Mick Fanning next week on the Howie Games. Go Fano, go Fano, go Fano. <laughs> that was mighty Mick Fanning. Back to Cadell in a moment, but first... Now back to the Tour de France champ, Cadell Evans. So we've got to the Tour and I love the Tour. Like, it, it fascinates me for so many reasons and this could be a seven-part episode of the Howie Games if you had eight hours just to talk about the Tour, which you don't. I want to I talk to you about training about it in a moment, but you mentioned, so you've come second, I think it was 2007, 2008. That's correct. And then 2009, 2010, you're 50-odd minutes off the pace, you've had injuries, you're back maybe 26 one year, maybe 30 another year. At, at that point, say after 2010, so you've been right at the peak. As you said, you've been criticised for coming second, but you've come second in the biggest bike race in the world. And then in some ways people could look at it, oh, he's going down the other side now. He's come second, he's come second, he's come 30th, he's come 26th. Did you start to think, have I missed my opportunity or not? No. So there's there's a lot more that goes on behind on the you. scenes. Good and on so you. In 2009, I remember being here and I rode over to Point Lonsdale to meet an old school friend and um, and this was December 2008 and she asked me, how's it going for the tour? And I looked at her and I said, I shook my head. And and she was planning to come out and watch her first Tour de France with her uh, with a friend or something, and I shook my head because there was so many uh, internal problems, political problems within the team that I was with that I just knew that it wasn't going to... It was going to be really, really difficult. And um, in the end, I, I always put the use of the metaphor, <laughs> if you keep banging your head against the brick wall, what's going to break first, <laughs> your head or the bricks? Um, in your case, I think the bricks could help. <laughs> at a certain point, I stopped banging my head because it just wasn't. And so, um, and then the next year, I came back with a new team, and, and this was a strange story, but a strange situation, but... Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a small crash in the tour in about stage five or six or something, but I'd taken two minutes on Alberto Contador the stay or one or two days before on the cobbles. This year there's cobbles in the Tour de France from the Paris Bay, and I'd taken two minutes on Contador. Well, this is going all right. Next day I have a small crash. Unknowingly, I, I fractured my elbow. Didn't know, got back on my bike. Bit of pain discomfort, but this is bike racing. You crash, you get up as soon as you can, you get back in the peloton, you get I back pushed to pushed and I finished and took the yellow jersey. Um, next day, rest day, <clears throat> and the doctor, the team doctor comes to me, oh, let's just go and check. We'll just go down. There's a radiology department here. We've 
got special access. You go in the back door. No one's going to see you. We'll go in. We'll just check everything's okay. And sure enough, we go in and take an X-ray, and there's a fracture in my elbow. And I've got the yellow jersey at the Tour de France. First year for the teams at the Tour de France. We've been invited, especially <laughs> to the Tour de France. <laughs> Here I am with a broken elbow. So I get on the start line the next day, and um, funnily enough, I. Um, there's about 40 guys left in the group over the first big climb of the day and I'm really struggling. And I know from experience, 40 guys is way too many. If there's five guys left and I'm struggling, I know I'm on a good day. But if there's 40, I know I'm on a terrible day. And um, long story short, I lost eight minutes. And um, But I had a broken arm. No one knew it. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want to uh, upset my team's confidence or anything. And I pushed on. And, and, and so with that in mind, I knew this was going on. Not many people did. I thought, well... I had two minutes on Contador, we were there, and in my mind that was um, almost a better chance to win that Tour de France than the second place at 23 seconds in 2007. Well, you've brought up pain about riding with a, a busted elbow. Tell me about pain on a bicycle. How much... I, I don't understand. Tell me about pain in, in the Tour de France. What, what type of pain is it? When does it come? How do you deal with it? <laughs> well, it's kind of you sort of condition yourself over many years, mentally and physically, to to deal with it. Basically, if you want to be a good bike rider, you've got to learn to hurt on the bike. Where, where do you hurt? Uh, well, normally in your legs. Right. Um, lactic acid. But um, pretty much every day you go training, you um, go out on the bike and you hurt yourself. It's kind of strange. So you just get used to it. And... Um, and, well, it's something you don't try and ignore because it's there. So you actually concentrate on it. And when you're on a good day, it doesn't hurt much for a certain level of uh, output of work. And on a bad day, it hurts a lot for a certain level of output or even a lesser output. The hardest days ever on the bike are your bad days. And especially the hardest day I ever had on my bike, <clears throat> to give an example, uh, Alpe d'Huez, 2008 Tour de France. And I had, uh, I think, 12 guys on the wheel, pretty much the first 12 on GC uh, of the Tour de France, minus one. And he was away, Carlos Sastre. And I had to close the gap to Carlos Sastre, Carlos Sastre, but I'd had a crash in the first week and I wasn't performing. It was taking about 5% off my top end. And basically I had to ride, I th I, in my mind, I had the legs to finish fifth or sixth in that Tour de France and I was second on GC and I had a chance to win it. And um, I was put in this situation and what I was lacking physically, I had to make up for mentally and I dug deep and I turned myself inside out and it was honestly the hardest I'd ever, ever pushed myself on a bicycle. The hardest day of my, um, my entire career cycling on a bike. Put myself in a position to be within striking distance of the, of, of the wind still. But uh, in a time trial, there's even less, uh, mm. less chance to hide. There's less chance to... Um, it's a time trial is uh, you, you, everything you can draw out of yourself mentally and physically, you get out on the road, but <laughs> mentally you're already drawing 100% out of yourself. So, of course, um, if you're lacking 5%, it really comes out in the time trial result. And I still wrote a good time trial. I was in the first 10, I think, but it, I missed out by um, 51 seconds on the win of the Tour de France. But let's remember, it's an 85-hour race in percentage terms. It's a very small margin. But that was actually, funnily enough, the, what uh, was the precursor, precursor to um, my team that I was in at the time losing complete faith in me as a, as a Tour de France rider. So when you say you turn yourself inside out, where mentally do you go? Like, do you, if uh, I don't do it very often, I swim laps, I find it boring, and I try and disconnect my brain if I'm doing it, or if I'm running, I try and disconnect my brain. Do you disconnect, or are you so focused on what you're doing? Where, where's, your, where's your head at that point? To, no, to, for me, as an individual, I, to get the best out of myself, I had to be very focused, and this was sometimes perceived as being unsociable <laughs> in a bike race, because yep. cycling can be quite social, but if yep. you're very focused, and um, in a bike race also you have to avoid crashes and things like that and it's very frustrating if you look over to talk to a friend or something you hit a traffic island at 50k an hour or something <laughs> frustrating consequences <laughs> yeah there it is having been there once or twice myself um and um and so I, I had to really focus myself, focus very hard to get everything out of myself and that was one of my greatest abilities was even if I wasn't riding at my best um I could get a lot out of myself nearly every time I, I, I raced and that was because of my ability to concentrate and to constantly extract everything out of myself the main thing and 
you have, I have various strategies and what you focus on and whether it's the race, whether it's the others, or sometimes if you're having a bad day, it's often better just to focus on yourself and whether it's your breathing or your efficiency, the way you're pedaling or, or something, um, yeah, that's there. Yeah, that's, that's what I focus on, but always with a great, um, I always focused on everything I could feel all my feelings and constantly making a little analysis of how I'm riding, how I'm going, how the others are going, and um, to, to, to extract the best out of myself. What's the temperature doing? Am I dehydrated? Am I watching nutrition? What's the race doing? Where are we going? What's the weather doing? What's uh, um, all these different factors and just constantly making this constant analysis while I'm, while I'm going. And, and, and the same applied for training. So for 20 years, I've been making these analysis and this and so, Sometimes now when I, someone asks me how long does it take to ride up the next climb, if you tell me the altitude start and finish altitude and the distance, I can calculate it fairly closely <laughs> for a wide, wide, wide variety of riders, competitors and myself. So training, uh, in a short-term answer, training at your peak to prepare for a Tour de France when you're at your heaviest point of training, what's a week? Um, the biggest biggest week of training, if we go back to the week, say my best week of training before the 2011 Tour de France, um, we also with a teammate and a close friend, osteopath, you know, up in altitude in uh, the top of Sierra Nevada in Spain. Um, basically, wake up, core, exercises, a bit of strength training, breakfast, large calorie breakfast. Big rides would be four, five, six hours at altitude with efforts on the flat, on the climbs. Uh, I remember I did one of my biggest days of those who ride um, accumulated climbing altitude gain about 5,000 metres, 4,500 metres oh. of climbing. With the efforts in a five-hour ride, the, the calorie output is enormous. But uh, the fact that you can do this day after day, um, my coach set for me, a, there was a four-day block of the Tour de France, which was the most heavy block. It was a replication of the last, the Galibier stage, the Alpe d'Huez stage. We were basically replicating this in training, but at altitude. But then when we come into the third week of the Tour de France, my body's already done all this workload with the climbing volume, with the distance, with the duration, with the intensity, so that and not at altitude, um, so that um, so that we could just do it a little bit better. But they were, I remember looking at the numbers we're doing, I'm like, wow, I'm training really, really well here. And and that was, um, yeah, that, that, and basically, but it was just one of those moments. We were in a dingy little hotel on top of a mountain. No one we knew we were there. One thing for me, a training camp, no media, no one, no, we don't tell anyone we're there. We just go away. We just focus on training and recovering and doing, doing, doing our work and then um, come out. There's, there's everyone's at the press conference at the Tour de France if you win. <laughs> so I, I always was focused on that to, to not be distracted and just focus and train well, but also gain a bit of um, peace and tranquility before you go into the Tour because obviously it's three weeks where you're in a lot of attention and, and that, that in itself can be quite stressful as well so I sort of had to charge the batteries of patience and tolerance before I got to got into that Up in the mountains and no press and a dodgy hotel, it sounds like old Rocky IV when he was getting ready to take on Ivan Drago when he was up in the mountains I don't know if you've seen that one but I, I have and you know what if you go and if you look at the gyms and the, the, the amount of hours I've sweated in garages and ergos and the dingy smelly places, dust even dirty compared to now that I'm retired and I actually have time to have a nice home gym with yep. mirrors and lights and things now now I've got a gym that you see in the magazine when I was training to win the Tour de France uh, the hours I sweated away in my garage <laughs> or something um, it was a lot like Rocky IV <laughs> a lot like Rocky IV in the Ford. end you beat Ivan Drago so it all worked out so at that point what, what's, your, what's your resting heart rate at that point when you're at your peak um, so basically as an endurance cyclist you're in a constant state of overtraining so it will always be sitting 10 or 15 points uh, above what it is yep. and um, I didn't have a super low heart rate but it would drop below 40 35, 40. 35 but also, you're talking to a person who has a great sensitivity to their body just by, yeah. I could manipulate it emotionally and with breathing and, and reduce it down to 32 or something. The, um, the, the interesting factor is, is your efficiency, what your heart rate is when you're riding at 40k an hour, but also your, uh, how close your threshold is to your maximum heart rate. And we just had the race here and sometimes I commentate on a race once a year and um, we have this telemetry in a race here. Not telemetry, but a 
system where we can see the rider's heart rates and it comes up on the TV. Yep. Chris Froome was riding along at 130 beats a minute when the commentator said, oh, no, that's not correct. Well, Chris Froome only has a maximum heart rate, I think, of 161 beats a minute. So for him, that's actually quite a high heart rate. But it's, it's all relative in that regard. But um, So in relation to you? Whereas when at me at my age, I would have had a maximum heart rate of, say, 180 but I would have been for the same output, 140, 145 beats a minute probably, but in percentage terms, we would have been the same. And, and how long are you like redlining or whatever? In, in a Tour de France stage, when you're trying to get up the up to who is, how, how long are you at your maximum output? Yep, so we would be, what, we would be at threshold, and I had a great ability as a rider to sit at my limit and in the red, so to speak, above threshold for long periods of time. And um, Okay, so what's a long period? Is it a minute, a half an um, hour, or is it...? Hour, hour an and a half. Hour <laughs> for the entire maximum. climb, for the entire climb or two climbs. And uh, my first Tour de France <laughs> stage, yeah, like I remember, it was uh, Lance Armstrong's last Tour de France. And um, oh yeah, I spent the entire I, both of the climbs at threshold or above, which physiologically is not actually possible. But I was I was a bit underdone coming back from injury or something. And um, and so um, <laughs> this ridiculous heart rate, something at 180 beats a minute for phenomenal for for like an hour. But my maximum heart rate is only like 187 or something. So <clears throat> so, but that was my ability again to concentrate to get the best out of myself, and that was what served me with the physical capacity that I had, and my ability to focus in a race, be reasonably efficient in the peloton positioning, and. Um, a reasonable amount of race now and, 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 and the ability to concentrate and extract everything out of myself on, on, on any given important day. This, um, I told you at the start that this is all positives and it aims to inspire the audience of how he aims. That's, um, that inspires me. Like, people are going to be listening. Cyclists will listen to this and they'll be out there by thinking... I know, they're going to wow. be analysing all my numbers. Huh? Well, they will be. <laughs> and, and they'll probably be coming back and testing me, uh, testing uh, or reviewing them and, and pointing out if I made any errors. Uh, uh, I find that phenomenal. So we get to 2011. Um, what happens at the end of a day... As I said, I'm fascinated by the Tour de France. What, what happens at the end of a day, halfway through the Tour? You get off the bike, you do the media, then what happens? Um, so um, you, uh, your focus is to get, get probably to the hotel as soon as possible to relax and recover. The longer you can, you're, you have sort of two races really. You have the race where you're racing, but you also then you step out of the race, you're racing to recover. Right. Don't race too much because you're not going to recover, but the main thing is you just want to, the more time you can lie down, the best, the better you are because that's the more recovery you're getting, the better quality recovery you're getting. Remember, we're 21 days, three weeks, and you've only got like a window between the, the 5 p.m. general 5 p.m. finish on X day to yep. the 11 a.m. start the next day, X plus one. Um, you've, you want to utilise those hours in between as best as possible. Um, massage, sleep, nutrition, and then beyond that, little things, compression pants, maybe ice baths if it's a hot day can be beneficial. Um, What's nutrition? What do you sit down? Like you have like 15 well, steaks or what do you eat? Um, uh, carbohydrates, protein, I'm big on vegetables just because I like them. <laughs> Nutritionists, uh, dietitians always tell me I eat too many vegetables. It's a funny thing to hear, isn't it? Um, You're the what? first person in the world that's ever been told that I recommend eat up on the vegetables. <laughs> we're, we're both fathers, so <laughs> we know how that goes. Um, but um, yeah, going back to being an example to the young people. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it, at the dinner table, there's a, at our dinner table, when it's my father, when it's father and son <clears throat> having dinner, uh, I'm the one eating the pl- pile of vegetables, and right. the other ones eating the, all the carbs and protein. Yep. Anyway. Um, um, three weeks as well. Let's look at both aspects of it. You have the physical requirements of diet of of nutrition. You have the emotional requirements. Food is something. Some of the best advice I ever got, this is from a sports doctor in Melbourne, Dr. Andrew Garner, he said to me, food is there to be enjoyed. I had a career for 20 years. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't have been able to do it for 20 years. So, um, so that's, that's an important, I think that's a, the most important thing in nutrition. You need to enjoy what you're eating because <laughs> inevitably we're going to be eating it for the, re- we're going to yeah. be eating for the rest of our lives. And so uh, let's make sure if we can enjoy it, well, that's going to make it all better. But um, probably a Mediterranean diet, we could say, is what I, I live just over the border from Italy. Um, I eat Italian food. I love Italian food. And basically on that and then according to the requirements of a given day, um, 
Well, yeah, when we go back to the calorie requirements of mountain stages, the tourists can be beyond 10,000 calories. Um, that's quite a lot of pasta. 10,000 uh, calories. What's a normal people, person eating a day calorie-wise? Recommended daily intake for a normal person, male, my weight, 2,500. Wow. So, um, <laughs> you've got to get some fuel in. Yeah, you've got to get a lot of fuel in, but of course that's not going to come purely from carbohydrates because in terms of 10,000 calories of pasta is about at four grams, four calories per gram. Was it four, six grams? Six calories per gram. That's kilos of pasta. So obviously um, you're eating within that protein, fat. And um, the most important part of a Tour de France diet is actually what you eat on the bike, not so much what you eat off. It's what you consume during it through uh, hydration, bars, food. Um, I like to eat solid food because it's three weeks. And again, I'm going back to that emotional thing. Um, sorry, I, I, once, I think in my first two or three uh, Tour de France's, we were sponsored by, I think, Power Bar, and I only Power Bars for the start to finish the Tour de France. Great, controllable nutrition, easy to carry and whatever, but after eating them for three weeks... There's <laughs> only so many Power Bars you can have, mate. They've got a lot of nice flavours, but... <laughs> But uh, there's this, you know, it's just like the textures and the, and and so um, yeah, we had like these paninis we call it in cycling. These little, um, I think it's um, little bread rolls. They're high, high milk content, so they're a bit, and then you put anything or whatever you want on them: honey, jam, cheese, and. Um, and then some bars and then in the final you normally just switch to liquid for about the last hour, which is gels and of course bottles, energy drink and and water. Plenty more of Cadell Evans to come in a moment. We absolutely love your feedback on the Howie game, suggested guests, comments, thoughts, etc. And tell us where you're listening and what you're doing while you're listening so we can give some of you a shout-out in upcoming episodes. Hit me up on MarkHoward03 on Twitter or Facebook or email the Howie Games, that's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, the Howie Games at hotmail.com. Now, if you missed last week's episode, you missed Catherine Freeman as she went all the way back to the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000 and in some ways forever changed a famous page in Australian history. That's another thing that burns a bit away at me is that I just, I know I could have run faster than what I actually have, but that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. You, you don't look at that night and think I could have run faster, do you? I actually crossed the line, looked across at the time, 49.1. I was immediately disappointed because I would have loved to have run 48. And I remember looking at Morrie, good old Morrie Plant, who was with the B, BBC, and I just remember leaning over with my hands were on my knees and just shaking my head and thinking, oh. yeah. So that head shake was disappointment at your time? Yeah. Wow, all right. Okay, thanks to Cathy Freeman. Now, back to Cadell Evans. So it comes to pass that it all comes down to the time trial. It's funny you mentioned the time trial, that now it comes down to the time trial to, you, to win the 2011 Tour de France. You've got the Schleck boys, I think. Was it Andy was maybe nearly a minute, 57 seconds or something in front? Yeah, you might know, you know this better than me. I yeah, I reckon it's 57 As I said, mate, I, it fascinates me. And to, to watch, I did one of these with Ange Postacoglu and I said to him that the couple of things that are stuck in my mind in Australian sport is when we qualified for the World Cup and we beat Uruguay. I was lucky enough to see Cathy Freeman win. And it's weird to say to someone in person, but mate, watching you compete that year in the Tour de France and going into that time trial with the potential to win it... Um, I don't know if even now you, because you weren't in Australia, I don't know if you could understand the effect and the impact that it had on people. It was get to work. Wow, what about Cadell last night? He lost time here. He dropped time there. Mate, it was um, it, it was a defining moment for sport in the country, which is... Oh, awesome. It, it was. It was awesome. I, I, I was on the other side of the world, and like I said, I was my greatest ability was my ability to concentrate on focus and block out all of these things. It's, um, one thing I found during the Tour de France, I, I would call home, call my mum, how are you going, to get some something that outside of the Tour de France, just to have something to think about. And all she would ask me about is the Tour, and I'm like, ah. She was on the news every night. I remember I was working in 10 News, and a, a journalist by the name of Kelly Underwood had, a, had developed a relationship with your mum, Helen. Yep, that's um, and she was there every night. She'd be on the news. It'd be Cadell's mum's on. It was, mate. It was, it was like when we won the America's Cup. It was phenomenal. I heard. Um, it's really nice to hear this now, and that so many people followed my oh. career. It's, um, and I, I, I keep hearing stories where they were watching the time trial, or, or some guy who owns a 
pub or something in the city or something. No, no one bought any beer until 10k to go or until you're how, on equal time with or something brilliant. and then the parties and things that they had and and it's so nice to hear that now and, and again as a sports person there I was obviously concentrated on the task at hand but um, when we go back to being setting an example whether it's for our children or, yeah. or beyond I had the privilege as a sports person being on TV and so on to show an example to young and old and and um, the fact that so many people could see what I was doing, could understand what I was doing, appreciate what I was doing and um, be entertained and even thrilled by this this effort is, is really something uh, so much more than I ever hoped that I would be able to... Um, my sport would ever be able to, to bring to people and, and to my countrymen and... and um, <clears throat> It gives it, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it now. So you go in on that. Was it the was it the second last stage? Uh, the yeah, time trial. So normally, yeah, the you have a time trial in all the second last stage. This one was in Grenoble. Um, it was uh, I think about forty four kilometre stage, and forty two and a half. We'd had a. Um, We'd had a, a race on almost the identical course in a lead-up race doing that, and I was surprised that the Schlecks didn't do this race because it was actually quite a t- technical time trial, and my thing was the um, team was we prepare everything, all the equipment for rain and for sun for this time trial, but at the lead-up race, and... Um, <laughs> and I, I actually, I can say, it's easy to say now, but I was with... Uh, um, with one the, who's a colleague of mine now at the BMC company, I said, because it could be really, really important when we come back here in July. And, um, and the thing was, the downhills there at race speed, even if you go in training, you can't practice them at race speed. And I'd already done all the downhills and everything at a race speed, in a race speed, on my time trial bike, and that gave me a real advantage. And Because um, we, we had one little disagreement, and um, he wanted me to use a specific time trial front tyre because of the weight saving. And I was like, no, 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 no. Give me the grippiest road tyre. There is, I know it's four seconds per kilometre slower. Because you'd done it. I was hoping to recuperate more than that on the downhills, and um, and uh, in the end that that was that was also part of it. But it's um, you know preparation that's from the biomechanical testing, the velodrome testing, the wind tunnel testing over years, refining the position to the course practice and having a system in the course. I'm um, going down doing these corners. Of course, I know the corners. I've raced on it. I've practiced it in the morning, but um, I've got in my radio in the year with the course director. Right turn, eighty percent on the aero bar. Right turn, left turn, full. And is he telling you what Schleck's doing once he starts? And giving me time checks while I'm doing it. Yeah, so does that spur you when, so you, when you're course, catching? Of course, and having been in this situation before, speaking of your difficulties and challenges in life, what you learn from them, I've been coming from behind on two occasions before for the win of the Tour de France. And this time I go after 4K and I've taken back 20 seconds and all of a sudden it becomes from, instead of putting the pressure, screwing the pressure on, it's like a release valve. <laughs> And, of course, the effect on your performance is fantastic. And after that, you just keep pushing the accelerator and twisting the throttle, and it just keeps going faster. So at what point, because you have that... I still find it bizarre when I watch you cruise around the Champs-Élysées and blokes are drinking champagne in the final stage of a race. At what stage do you allow yourself to realise you'd won the Tour de France? And I was strict on this with the team, and they were a bit disappointed. So when we came back from the time trial, we were absolutely elated. But I'm really strict because I've seen a few people who have just relaxed. One of the biggest undoers of successes and successful people is complacency. And so um, it wasn't until we crossed the line and we had the yellow jersey there that I embraced the guys and, and, um, and that was, yeah, crossed the line, signed, sealed, delivered. Here it is, we've won this and now we've got to have a beer and a pizza. Uh, what's, so what does it mean to you when, when you cross the line? When does it sink in? Like I looked again this morning on YouTube and when they were singing the national anthem and they had the Schleck boys on either side of you, you got that little furry line and you got the yellow <laughs> jersey on. It's like this is a long way from getting your first bike in the Northern Territory. Um, honestly, if I probably had two moments in my career, three moments in my career where you're in a situation and you honestly don't know if you're there or you're asleep in a dream. And that was one of those moments where it's just so much is going on and you know, have I got my hat on with the sponsor's logo? Um, what language are we speaking? Who am I talking to? Am I on TV? Yes. Um, 
how many millions of viewers look ahead, smile. Um, am I dreaming or is this happening? It was just one of those situations and it all happened and that was a particular situation, of course, that changed my life there after um, I was... I have this thing, all of a sudden, this time that was so valuable to me that I grew up living that is me, being by myself doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Six, seven months later, I was driving to see a friend or something, and I'm driving along, and it's the first time that I've been a few hours by myself, and just, I'm driving somewhere else. It occurs to me, shit, that was a really good Tour de France, but it was like February 2012 or something that, that I, I had time to sit and reflect and look back. It was such a, it was such a long process to get there. It's a, the race itself is three weeks long, and of course... Um, from when it happens, the, the moment you cross the finish line, it's left, right, uh, everywhere, and um, and and it really, it really did change my life. Of course, all for the better, and um, but it really took a long time to re really, truly sink in. And still today, you tell me the stories of watching the time trial. There's things that I don't know, and it. it, it it gives me goosebumps as well to hear how much uh, pleasure it brought to people or how people maybe were inspired to... I met a lady the other day and she said she watched the Tour de France and how much weight she lost and how good she feels and this, this gives me so much pleasure. Um, <clears throat> personal satisfaction of the efforts that I made to do what I did and, and, um, and so that still comes today. It's a, it's a remarkable achievement. It's, oh, uh, thank you. Well, yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like just listening to you describe it and being up there on the Champs Elysees. Hey, can, can I? Um, oh, taxi. Hey, can um, can I ask you something about you? Something completely different. Um, as we've got to the ultimate there. You mentioned your young bloke a couple of times. Your son, um, and. I find the best way to do this. I was speaking to Elaine Beachley not too long ago, on, on, and she had a very personal situation with adoption, etc. And I just sort of said to her, "Listen, I don't want to ask any questions. I just want you to tell me the story." So, as much as you'd like to tell me the story, can you tell me the story of your son? Um, so we uh, chose to um, start a family through adoption, which is normally the, it normally goes the opposite way, but uh, just in this case, we started there and. Um, it started in 2000 and, um, 2008, 2009, and we went through the process of th that happens in Switzerland. It's quite a fast, pro relatively quite a fast process. And funnily enough, I was riding along on my bike thinking about the whole thing today, actually, reflecting on it and um, going to Ethiopia and meeting him for the first time. And, um, and um, it was... <laughs> most amazing experience of my life and um, such a, an incredible learning experience going, going it's amazing, of all the places you can travel in the world when you travel to a really poor country um, I've, I've only been to places like Nepal or Ethiopia but you it, it really does change you for the better uh, as a person, as a human being and um, and um, so, and so you went to Addis Ababa or Addis, Addis uh, yep we were, right. and um well, we, why did you choose Ethiopia? Um, because in the end, the adoption, to, to adopt is a very complicated process. Yes. And there was a, um, where we lived, the adoption, we, 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 I live in Switzerland, I was living in Switzerland and the, um, they had a good organisation that did adoption, adoption only from Ethiopia and um, in the end it's, you adopt where you can, not, you know, it's not that you have much choice. Yeah. And, um, and Ethiopia had a real need, they have a, they have a lot of orphans and they have a real need to find homes for children, families for children, and um, and of course um, we want to we want to offer a, a home and a, a, a life to a, 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 a child in need, and that child is my son. And um, so, where do you first see him? Like, where where's so, he, where's he come um, from? So it's quite a um, the process is very slow and and long and quite tedious. The paperwork, the administration, everything. But then actually, the process when it happens is very fast. And it starts with a email, a photo <laughs> that you receive via email, and then it quickly goes. That's the very first time you see him. Yep. And wow. Um, and then it goes, and then you see these photos, and you get two or three photos. And of course, from that point to when you get there, you're looking at these photos every. 30 seconds um, uh, of, of your life until that process and then wow. um, 
and and basically we walked into this care center which is run by the Swiss adoption organization mano mano nella mano is hand in hand is what the organization is called and um and you walk in there and you say oh we this is our name uh, and and this uh, we're here to and they go in and there's 10 kids and they say oh here he is and and that's when you meet him and you hold him in your hands for the first time and that's a pretty amazing what's that moment like <laughs> absolutely incredible um, because well i think the 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 biggest difference is normally people come through child through a through a birth but th- that's also a very good conditioning process because you get course, a 9 month lead in mate don't you <laughs> well at least because <laughs> yes. of course there's this, this stage of getting to the yes. to the pregnancy and then whereas this happens you walk in as a young couple no child and of course as everyone who's a parent knows <laughs> your life changes when you have children and then you walk out and you and you, and you have a you have your child in your arms and um and yeah it's um yeah <laughs> quickly <laughs> nappies all those things but then of course you 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 get to know this person who is all of a sudden has become the most important person in your life but you just you want to get to know them and they need to get to know you and and then of course you have uh it takes a long time really the um avicinamento it's called the um bonding process is is quite a long time and that's where as a cyclist for me as a father I was away often so so that that is that takes a longer time so but of course it's something you have to spend time doing and um and then that's um, that's so it's in summary so one thing if I could if I can and there's one thing that amazed me in this process and that when we speak of nature and nurture within um one or two months the characteristics the mannerisms the gestures are picked up so quickly it's incredible from you yeah from 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 pa- from both parents it really is um incredible so you've inspired so many does is your little bloke does he inspire you like where oh, he's come from and where he is it's it's phenomenal oh I, when you hear his story and his history um i i used to hold him as a baby when he, he was uh, 15 months old when we first uh, first met him and but you hear his story where he came from and you think my god which is can you can you tell me where he came from he, he was um oh he his parents are unknown and um physically and mentally there's not there's a lot of adults that wouldn't be able to deal with what he's already dealt with at, at age up to 15 months old and um and so um does you look at this he's, he's and he's a of course i'm a bias being his dad but he's a beautiful little 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 guy and um and, and and you look at him and he's so sweet and delicate but at the same time you think how strong he's been just to get to where he is to at that point in life and um and that 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 to me is an inspiration he's overcome so much so many difficulties already at eight, at 15 months um that yeah i certainly found that as an inspiration i think i enjoyed that story more than i enjoyed you telling me about 2011 which is crazy talking about kids you met my two lunatics and we're under time constraints uh the pickle and the big penguin what i normally get them to do uh you've just shown me a picture of him and he is just a little look at his little hair and he's <laughs> that was his first passport photo oh. he's a little bit bigger now but he <laughs> he's beautiful mate he's, he's, he's from shashamani which is the original origin of the um jamaican rasta right and he's got a bit of that about him too with his hair <laughs> he is beautiful <laughs> And yes, and if you if you understand his music skills, you can, it all makes sense. Does it? So he's pretty handy in the music he's, department, he's is he? Incredible. When you have a four-year-old who's sitting in the car, he says, "Puppy, put on some AC." ACDC. Right. <laughs> Not the air conditioning. The ACDC. Well, talking about children, both my kids, because they watch your race, um, and we often get them to ask questions. So the big penguin has a first question for you, which I recorded on my phone, people that are used to the Howie games. Hopefully you can hear it in here. This is the big penguins question to you, Cadell. Hi, Cadell Evans. I want a big penguin here. I want to know how fast you've been on your bike before. He's been quite informal by saying hi, Cadell Evans, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he wants to know how fast you've been before. The fastest speed I ever did on my bike was in a race in Germany. I think uh, the computer said 122 kilometres an hour. Oh, wow. I'll tell the big penguin that and tell him he needs to crank it up a bit. I've got to say, um, I've been very, very lucky to chat with some people, but what you've told me over the last hour or so, and I know there's people waiting your time, it's fascinated me, mate. It's to sit here with someone that has inspired so many and inspired me. Um, yeah, what, 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 what happens now? Like, what, what do you do now? 
Um, you're on oh, your bike. I, 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 still, I still ride still. my bike. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a mountain bike race in March, going back to my roots, which is going to be fun. Uh, just had an uh, just had an accident on my mountain bike actually, so I'm trying oh. to catch up on some training. Yeah, yeah. Rode in some. Um, I was riding up in the Dolomites and um, never never ridden in ice be- on ice before. It's very slippery. Oh, I no doubt it is. No doubt it is. <laughs> <laughs> you're riding along and quickly you're lying on the ground. Um, that uh, that was a bit dis- that was a bit annoying, but um, just trying to catch up on some kilometres uh, in anticipation of. Um, <clears throat> minimising the um, suffering in my competition in March now but um, I still enjoy riding my bike probably enjoy riding it more because I don't have these expectations to ride like number one or number five in the world every time I get on my bike which is um, makes it a little, lot easier to, to enjoy but um, my my biggest focus at the moment we've had we have the race the Great Ocean Road race and um, we're really happy with where it's gone and I feel very honoured that I can have a race in my name because it even though I don't compete anymore, like we spoke about, I can still inspire kids. I can see young, old, um, through the public ride, through the racing. And um, this weekend, um, the last guys are just going home now from the race now, and they were all male, female, riders, staff. To see them all go home happy and had a, had, had a great experience here is brings a group it gives us a great deal of satisfaction but it's really something that I hope that's um, going to serve not only cycling but the community here and and further beyond the community in terms of a, 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 an annual event on the Australian sporting calendar. Well as I said at the start you've inspired me but probably more importantly to me you've inspired my two kids on the weekend which is a very very nice gift you can give someone mate thanks for your time and um, yeah yeah it just it's been great to have a chat with you. Thank you very very much for, for having me on. Thank you so much to the great man, Cadell Evans. I found that episode really motivating. I hope you do too and you get out and have a crack at whatever you're trying to achieve in life. Thanks as always to the big, big Howie Games production team, which would be Michael James, and that's pretty much it. Okay, hope you enjoyed the ep. Until next week, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try Listener